going to go ahead and get started. As is our pattern, we're going to review last week a little bit before we go into our new stuff. Is that my mom back there talking? It's either my husband or my mom. We're going to put no Marians or McCreary's are allowed in this room. That's all there is to it. So we started last week with Joseph, and you can sit down, it's okay, with Joseph and his 11 brothers and his father Jacob all in Egypt, ostensibly just to live out the last five years of the famine. And we know they ended up staying for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, multiplying, um, becoming very fruitful, and that's why they were there at the time of Moses. A pharaoh comes to power who doesn't know Joseph, and says, we got to take care of these Israelites. we got to do something about this. They bear down on them, try to kill the baby boys, but they continue to flourish, and ultimately God sends Moses, upon hearing the cries of his people, God sends Moses to be his man to deliver his um, people from the Egyptians and take them back home to the Promised Land. And so we talked about Moses. He was the first Old Testament prophet, and the key events there... Exodus from Egypt and the uh, giving of the law. Those are the two key events. And this is like kind of review, so I don't have it up right there. But anyway, you'll have it in your notes. And remember, the giving of the law, Moses was up on Mount Sinai, and the law came from God's mouth and God's hand, inscripted on tablets. And then later, because of what happened, while that was going on down at the base of the mountain, Moses breaks the tablets. Later on, God has to re- write, inscribe, transcribe, whatever you call it, the, um, the law on the tablets. So this came straight from God. And the point of the law was to set Israel apart and then also to show them their need for a Savior. Now, I'm going to put a little parenthetical insert here based on what we talked about last week. And, of course, my husband is not in here because he was the one that prompted this whole discussion, but, or part of this one. Remember the scene last week. We had Moses on Mount Sinai. The Lord is giving him the law, and God sort of pauses and says, you need to get down there to your people. I love that phrase. He says, your people, kind of like when, you know, my kids are misbehaving, and I tell David, go get your kids. <laughs> um, yeah, so when they're misbehaving, it's somebody else's. But God says, go down there to your people. Leave me alone. Let my anger burn and I will destroy them and start with you, and I'll create a great nation from you. And we talked about how Moses said to God, you can't do that. You, um, you know, what are the Egyptians going to think? You just let, you know, you, you just delivered your people from Egypt, and you're going to bring them out here to the wilderness to slaughter them all. And then he reminded God of the Abrahamic covenant and the promises that God had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so the scripture says, in the New American Standard that I tend to use, in the NASB, it says, God changed his mind. So, and you know, you guys know me hopefully by now. I like to like insert my personality into this. And so when I use the phrase, my possibly an ill-chosen phrase, last week my husband's blood pressure went up, but I said, Moses taught God off the ledge. And we had this lovely conversation at home, and he said, that, it, that gives the impression that God's impulsive or that he makes rash decisions. And we got in this big discussion about God's immutability. One of God's attributes is that he is immutable. He is unchanging. Immutable means 
unchanging in God. God is unchanging in his character, in his will, and in his covenantal promises. So God is unchanging in his character, his will, and his covenantal promises. Just a couple of verses that reinforce that. Numbers 23, 19, and these are familiar ones. I'm sure some of you guys probably have these committed to memory. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Another one is Malachi 3, 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Can't get much clearer than that. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Wow. Um, and then James 1.17, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So we know from God's word that he does not change. So that brings up this sort of, what do we do with these situations like Moses on Mount Sinai, when it sounds like God's ready to just blitz the Israelites and start over with Moses? Another example, I'm sure if I opened it up, you, you guys could probably think of, uh, let me just do this. Uh, anybody think of another set of people that were going to be destroyed, but because they repented, God withheld judgment? Some good old Bible trivia. Nineveh, you got it. God sends Jonah. Of course, we know he doesn't go the first time. He sends him again. He says, you need to go tell these people to repent. Judgment's coming. They repent tear their clothes, sackcloth and ashes, and God withholds his judgment. Another example is Abraham talking to God about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham said, or God says, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah unless I can find five, uh, 50 righteous men. Well, Abraham talks the Lord down. Well, how 50? How about 30? How about 25? And they get down to 10. I will destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. I will not destroy if I can find 10 righteous men. Well, we know he didn't, and he did destroy it. But Abraham somehow talked the Lord into making a change. Another example that I did not remember um, until I was really researching this was at one point, King Ahab, everybody knows King Ahab, mostly because of King Ahab's wife. Who was King Ahab's wife? Jezebel. <laughs> Jezebel. And probably one of the most wicked women mentioned in scripture. Because of his association, Ahab was an exceedingly wicked king. But at one point in Ahab's life, Elijah comes to him and tells him of pending judgment. And he is scared out of his wits, and he repents. And the scripture says that the Lord withheld the judgment that he was going to bring to Ahab and decided to bring it to his sons instead. So it still happened, but it wasn't Ahab. It was his sons later that, that received that judgment. So how do we reconcile these scenarios in Scripture where it seems like God says, I'm going to do one thing and then does another, or it seems like he changes his mind or makes a course correction? So that was the big debate. Yes, yes. Way back, I heard Max Lucado explain this. It's turned out this way. It's a little story. He's a great storyteller about the best for their daughter. She loved it, and they were going to give it to her for Christmas. But, and then had to be refinished, blah, blah, blah. And she said, Daddy, Daddy, please, please, can I have it? And of course, she got it earlier than Christmas. So he likens that to God. If the plan didn't change, the timing did, but the outcome was still the same. She got the desk, which is what he wanted, and it was just 
sooner, and yet that was fine with him. Is that right? Right. And there are some. Uh, I'm not going to get into. There's like a whole like whole um, theological discussion about you know attributing uh, human characteristics to God and trying to kind of put God into a box. And you know, that's kind of controversial. That's actually a very good analogy because this is basically what I would submit to you folks. Sometimes God withholds judgment or alters the timing of his actions based on human response. So there are times when he may seem to make a change, but the, the irony is in his omniscience and his sovereignty, he knows the final outcome anyway. He knew when he said to Moses, get down there. He knew that what they would be down there, you know, worshiping this golden calf. And he knew that when he said to Moses, get down there, I'm going to get rid of them. I'm starting over. He knew that Moses would plead on their behalf and that he would relent and withhold that judgment. When God chooses to alter his timing, that in no way contradicts or refutes his immutability. Does that make sense? I know you're just dying to make a comment. Let her rip! So, yeah, so my husband does have one final comment on this. You can say it. Go ahead. I know you want to say it. Go ahead. He's got it. That's, yeah, so we had his thing was, well, so what if he wants to change his mind? He's God. He can change his mind. But anyway, so y'all can mull over that a little bit. Yeah, you're not in our household. Anyway, okay, so the key relationship, it's fun on Wednesday nights, let me tell you. Um, the key relationship with Moses was the preparation for God's work. And just the key reminder here, if you're in the last one-third of your life, hang on, because the best may be yet to come. Um, it certainly was in Moses' life. That last 40 years was his um, the pinnacle of, there you go, Mama. That was the pinnacle of his accomplishments. Is there a full moon out tonight? Oh, it's kind of rowdy in here. And then after Moses, we moved on to Aaron. And Moses, uh, Aaron was Moses' brother, the first priest of the nation Israel. And the key event was the construction of the tabernacle. God gave Moses very concrete, descriptive, detailed instructions, and Moses was to follow those to the law, and once the construction was complete, the amazing happened, and God inhabited that tabernacle, and God's presence was with Israel visibly from that point on, and it's, you know, we talk about the Israelites wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. It wasn't like they were lost. I mean, they had God's presence with them. That's better than any GPS I know of. They sometimes ignored the fact that they had God's presence, but he was with them through his presence in the tabernacle. Uh, and the key relationship, this is when I got all weepy last week, the key relationship being the high priest as a type of Christ and how the high priest would make atonement for sin once a year. Yom Kippur, the atonement for sin once, for, once a year. And all they could do, the best they could do, was cover that sin. But a high priest, Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews tells us, that a high priest was coming, Jesus, who could make a, not just atone for sin, covering them, but completely forgive sin, break the power of sin and death, and serve not only as our high priest, but also as our sacrificial lamb. Uh, so he was priest and sacrifice, um, and we know that was obviously Jesus. So from there we move on to our exciting stuff for tonight. We start with Joshua. And Joshua was the second leader of the nation Israel. He was one of those original 12 spies that was sent into Canaan 
when they first arrived to spy out the place. This was before the wandering, remember? So they arrive, they send the spies in, and they go in there, uh, spy for 40 days, and come back, and Joshua and Caleb say, we can do it. Everybody else says, no, we can't. 40 years of wilderness wandering. And keep in mind, all of the, uh, an entire generation has died off. So Joshua is now one of the oldest, if not the oldest, person in the group. So God appoints him to be the second leader of the nation Israel. So who has, this is kind of a long passage, uh, Joshua 1, 1 through 8. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to you, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Is there one more verse? Nope. You said one through eight. Oh, did I? It was nine. Nine is, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with, with you wherever you go. Thank you. Sorry. Correct, make that change in your notes. That should be one through okay. nine. So, y'all want a little um, Bible humor? Like the first orphan in the Bible? First orphan mentioned in the Bible? Joshua, the son of Nun? Uh, anyway, yeah. Uh, anyway, I think I learned that when I was like six. <laughs> yeah. So, I'll keep my day job. So, we know from studying God's Word the kind of relationship that Moses had with the Lord. Joshua knew the kind of relationship that Moses had with the Lord. And I'm sure it was in, immensely intimidating to think of trying to fill those shoes. I, I, I think there's a reason why God tells him over and over and over, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. At the very beginning of Joshua's tenure as the second leader of Israel, God reminds him of three very important things in this passage. Uh, he reminds him of God's provision in the promised land. Everywhere they step has already been given to them. That is amazing. We know that there's going to be a lot of striving going on and a lot of skirmishes and battles, but to go into a land being told by God, everywhere you step, is already yours. It's yours for the taking. Huge relief. So God's provision of the promised land, God's protection from the Canaanites. God told Joshua that no one would be able to stand against them. And God's presence with Joshua, just as I was with my servant Moses, so I will be with you. 
three times in this passage, God tells Moses, I mean, excuse me, tells Joshua, be strong and courageous, over and over. One other very important thing at near the end of that passage, the primary way, and this is one of the verses we started with way back when we first did our introduction, one of the primary ways that Joshua would be a successful leader is if he knew the law, he meditated on it, he studied it, he did not deviate from it, and he obeyed it. So God wants Joshua to keep that law in the forefront of his mind. So the key event here is uh, the conquest of Canaan. Now the conquest of Canaan is not one singular event. It took a long time. As we mentioned last, last week, it wasn't like they just put a, we'll be back soon sign on, you know, around Canaan when they headed out to Egypt uh, 400 years prior, so, or 400 plus years prior, and so lots of people had settled in Canaan. So there would be a lot of activity for them to take the land back. But initially, there were three kind of important first steps to this conquest of Canaan. The first was the crossing of the Jordan River. Just like when they first left Egypt, they bump up against the Red Sea. Mm, that's a problem. Well, here we are again. We need to go into Canaan, and here's the Jordan River. So just like he did with the Red Sea, God miraculously parts the waters. They cross over on dry land. Fortunately, this time, there's not an enemy army in hot pursuit. And as they're crossing, God tells the men, to Joshua and his men, to collect some stones. And the second part of this is the consecration of Israel and a mass circumcision. So they get across the water. God wants Israel to be consecrated. They build memorials to remind future generations of what is happening. Now, all of the men who left Egypt when they first made their way to the Promised Land had been circumcised. Those uh, wandering the wilderness for 40 years were not. So God says, we're gonna pause right here. All these men are gonna be circumcised. We need to hang out till everybody heals, and then we're going to go to Jericho. So that's basically what happened. So the men are circumcised, and after a period of time, it's time to head to Jericho. So who has Joshua 6, 1 to 5? Now Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out and no one came in. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hands with its king, and the valiant warriors. You shall march around the city, all the men of war carrying the suit, carrying the suit, circling the city once. You shall do so for six days. Also, seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when they have made a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout and great, and with a great shout, and the wall of the city shall fall down. Thank you. So I oh, love that very first sentence. And Jer now Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. Word was out on the street. These Israelites are on the move. They had battened down the hatches. Nobody's coming in. Nobody's going out. And they are ready for, for whatever's coming. So God says to Joshua, this is the plan. This is how it's going to take place. I can only imagine Joshua's thoughts. Really? This is my first conquest. My first big battle. My first big, you know, 
leadership responsibility, and we're going to march around and blow some trumpets and holler. But they follow God's plan, and the walls fall flat. I love that. It's so simple. The wall of the city will fall flat. Um, so thus begins the conquest of Canaan. Who has uh, Joshua 21, 43 to 45? So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, according to all that he had sworn to their fathers, and no one of all their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. Thank all you. came to the past. Sorry. Thank you. Sorry, I cut you off a little early. So, all of the land which God had promised was given to them. The enemies, no one stood before them, and they had rest on every side. Does this mean that from the minute they stepped foot into Canaan until they had taken over Canaan, that there was not a single skirmish ever, no wars, no battles, no, no discord? No. God had still given them this land, but God was going to use these neighbors as a, a means of discipline as he needed to at times for his nation Israel. So the key relationship here is obedience versus judgment. Right now, God has his people in the process of taking back the land that he has given them, and they are around pagans at every turn. Debauchery, sin, evil of all sorts and kinds are surrounding them, and God wants his people to be different. That's why he gave them the law. And God set up the standard way before they ever got to the promised land. There's a passage that um, I'm going to have somebody read in Leviticus. When they're still, before they're ever even in the land, God tells Moses to tell the people, this is the standard. When you get to the promised land, this is what I expect of you. So, do you, Ray, do you have that one? Do you have Leviticus? Eighteen. One to five, yes, sir. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel. Say to thee, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you live, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live in accord with me. I am the Lord your God. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does I am the Lord. Thank you. God makes it very clear. I don't want you acting like the Egyptians. I don't want you acting like the Canaanites. I want you to act like my people. And the way you'll act like my people is to follow my law, my commands, my statutes. There's no question. And this is way before they ever get there. So the Israelites knew what was expected. So as they begin to spread throughout Canaan, God sometimes use, uses these other nations within Canaan to bring about judgment when there is disobedience. So sometimes there is a military defeat for a period of time. Now we know that the land is still theirs and they will ultimately have it, but God uses this um, as a teaching tool basically to bring his children back to obedience. So the land is still theirs for the taking. Ultimately, all of it is theirs, but um, they will find themselves chastened by neighboring countries uh, during this time period. 
it's very clear when you read these passages as, as Israel is you know, making their way into the promised land and spreading out that disobedience always results in heartache. I would say that's true even in the life of the believer today. So when we choose sin over obedience, typically that brings heartache. Might always be right away, but eventually. So we now have the nation Israel back where they belong in the promised land. And we, as they begin to spread out, they are in need of some guidance and some leadership. And it's no longer one mass of individuals moving around the wilderness where one leader can do the job, like with Moses or Joshua. Now they're kind of spread out. And so God institutes a system of judges. That's the next set of individuals that we uh, encounter along our highway of life. This series of judges. Uh, the judges would be military, civil, and religious leaders. And many of these judges would serve concurrently in different parts of Canaan. So there might be someone in uh, like a northern section you know, uh, judging here for 40 years while there's another judge down here in the south for 20 years. So it wasn't like a, this person was the judge for X number of years, and then this person, and then this person. There were different judges at different times in different locations. And so a group of people, like a small group, basically, or smaller group, would look to this judge for guidance, for, um, you know, important decisions, kind of like a, like a, um, like a, a, a court system, also as a religious leader, and then as a military leader to lead them in battle against other neighboring countries as they continue to spread out in Canaan. So there are lots and lots of these judges. I listed a couple up here. Some of these, if you've never heard of a rapid concordance, look them up, read their story. Some of these characters are really, they have amazing stories. Dave and I have one of our favorites. We won't get to know about Ehud. I like Ehud. The Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, Gideon, Samson, there's a lot more, but that's just a few to name. As far as like the key events, I mean, I could list on and on and on. So basically, I chose two, and it kind of gives you a flavor of the different characters these judges were. I would say that these judges were not exactly, well, certainly no one in Scripture is flawless, but it seems like they had a, a few more flaws or a few more... Um, chinks in their armor than some of God's other servants, like namely Samson. We'll get to him in a minute. But uh, the first one I wanted to mention was Gideon. Gideon was from the tribe of Manasseh, and he judged for 40 years. And Gideon had a little bit of, he had some trust issues with the Lord. He was obedient, but he just kind of was, sometimes he'd waver and just wanted to make sure he, he knew God's will. One of the major events that people know Gideon for is the fleece. If somebody tell me about the fleece. Right, so it's basically like, is the fleece wet and the ground dry and the, the fleece dry and the ground wet? That kind of a deal. And God does exactly what Gideon asks. Another one of those, you know, man, God did exactly what he asked. He didn't have to, but he did. Gideon was relieved and continued in obedience as a result of that. There are a lot of, you know, you can read a lot of uh, expositors that say that's, you know, it's testing God, putting God to the test. Um, other expositors say, oh, it's a good thing to do. I'll let y'all kind of decide about that. But Gideon is known for the, the fleece incident. He's also known for fighting the Midian army. 
And y'all probably know this story. When he first started to go against Midian, he had 32,000 men. And God basically says that's too many. And so he is instructed to tell those who are scared and trembling to leave and go home. So 32,000 tells the scared and trembling to go home. 22,000 immediately hit the road. Alrighty. Then he takes them to the water's edge, has them drink water, and those who lap, who lap like a dog, they have to go home. 9,700 of those. Those who cup the water and keep lookout uh, are the ones who are kept. So ultimately, 32,000 men whittled down to 300, and God uses those 300 men to defeat the Midian army. Who has, got, who has Judges 7-2? And the Lord said unto Midian, The people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel walk themselves against me, saying, Mine own hand hath saved me. Thank you. God gives Gideon the reason for this reducing of his army. He wants to get the praise and the glory for the victory, not Israel. This is, uh, we're not going to read the whole story. I would encourage you to look in Judges. This is a fabulous story. Uh, surprise attack, noise, light. The Midian army basically just turns on itself and, you know, destroys, they just, you know, implode basically, and the Israelites don't have to do a whole lot. Uh, it's a great story. Judges 7, if you want to read more about that. The second uh, key event that I basically selected was uh, Samson. And uh, Samson was of the tribe of Dan. And he judged for 20 years. And one interesting thing about um, Samson was he was a Nazarite. The Nazarites uh, took a specific vow, and there were three main things that, that comprised that vow. They, I have my list on there, yeah. They couldn't drink wine, they could not cut their hair, and they could not touch a corpse. So those were the three, three parts of the Nazarite vow. Anybody know of any other Nazarites in Scripture? Some that you might be surprised. I don't have him down as one as actually taking that vow. And the Nazarite vow was a specific vow, not just heritage. Samuel, who was the guy that ate locusts? John the Baptist and the Apostle Paul. And the Nazarite vow could also be taken for life. Like I, I'm pretty, I had to check my facts on this, but I'm almost sure that that um, Samuel that Samuel's mother, Hannah, that that was done like at birth, basically. Like that was a lifelong Nazarite vow. Others took the Nazarite vow for just a short period of time. So it's basically a setting themselves apart, wanting to remain away from things that could defile the body. And y'all know the story about Samson. We're not going to go into a whole lot, but um, he had a fondness for foreign women. He had a bit of a temper, a bit of an ego. Yet, God used him mightily against the Philistines. Um, interestingly, it was his last act, you know, blind, humiliated, hair cut. But as his hair grew, God used him in that final act of courage to basically take down the, uh, the pillars and destroy lots of Philistines. The key relationship here, and I hate leaving, this is a, I'm going to finish early tonight. This is a serious downer. This is not a pretty time in the life of the nation Israel. And we see a pattern emerge over and over and over. And the key relationship here is judgment and deliverance. Um, so I've got a couple of verses here. Judges 3.12. And, and the children of Israel again did evil <coughs> in the sight of, of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon king of Moab against Israel. 
because they had done evil in in the sight of the Lord. Thank you. Notice the um, the words uh, again, again. Uh, who has Judges four one to three? And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Ehud was dead, and the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, and reigned in Hazar, the captain of whose host was Sestra, which dwelt in Herosa of the Gentiles. I might have put it. Is there another verse? Can you keep going? And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, for he had nine hundred chariots of iron and twenty years of mighty oppressed the children of Israel. Thank you. Again, then again. And so you start to see a pattern emerge. When the judge who is judging dies, that's when they start kind of falling back into disobedience. And then they're oppressed for a period of time. And then a new judge emerges. Who has Judges 6 1? And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Gideon seven years. And then Judges 6, 7 to 10. And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord because of the Midianites. The Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel, which said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt, and brought you forth out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of all that oppressed you, and drave them out from before you, and gave you their land. And I said unto you, I am the Lord your God, fear not the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Thank you. So again, we just see we see God constantly trying to remind his his uh, children that I ta- I brought you out of Egypt, I brought you through the wilderness, I brought you to this land, and if you would only obey, it could all be yours. But because they would continue to disobey, God would deliver them into the hands of their enemies for a period of time. So God uses everyday circumstances to bring judgment and discipline. And then as the nation Israel cries out because of their oppression, God raises up a deliverer, delivers them. There is obedience for a period of time. Then the whole cycle repeats. Wash, rinse, repeat. So over and over again. So when you read these passages, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of, I don't know, kind of depressing. But um, it, it, I think Israel tended to forget very quickly their heritage, um, what God had brought them through. But lest I be too hard on the Israelites, I think I tend to do that as well. So um, again, I hate to leave on such a down note, because last week was on such a positive showed, note. Comment. showed his unconditional love. Any other comments, questions, thoughts? Yep. Yep. The discipline is not fun, but Scripture tells us that a father who does not love his son does not discipline his son. So you're right. See the wheels turning. I'm just curious about the. I just can't remember. The no touching corpse. Uh huh. The end of the work. Like, why was that? I mean, when I look at those things, no wine, no t- that's no something that right. people would want to do. Right. Um, no cutting your hair. People wouldn't want to cut their hair. I don't know anybody wants to touch a corpse, so what do you know about that? What's on there? It goes back on Leviticus, doesn't it? Is it my notes? 
the corpse was unclean, right? Other than what we would defile the individual. Thank you, Mom. Thanks for giving him daggers. Uh, it's, it's what would defile the individual. So, yeah. I mean, beside that, I mean, and, and, right, like, I don't know that that might be the easy one to check off. Well, check. I, you know, I don't have to worry about that. I'm not planning on doing that, so, you know, I'm one-third there. You know, a lot of that stuff had to do with diseases and you know, the Levitical diet that they had out in the uh, desert. Uh, you know, that was preserved in all right. kinds of diseases. Uh, you want to see the feel. This is encouraging to, because this is what the children are doing for our Bible for homeschool, and what we just learned yesterday when we were doing this is like the time frame. Each time that they repented, it took them longer. Mm-hmm. And the application for us was that, why is it, if you would just repent now and not continuing, but every time we sing the song of the sin, the Israelites song of the sin, it took them, we went from eight, the first one we read was eight years, and then 18 years, and then it kept getting longer. You know, it's right, right. to good point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You think they'd see the pattern? It's then. not just children that don't Right, you're absolutely right. Well, I'm actually going to let you guys go early. I don't. I, I can't believe it. So, thank you for your attention. If you